Welcome to season two of The Unforgiving 60 with your hosts, Ben Pronk and Tim Curtis. Two ex-SAS guys armed with MBAs. In this show, Ben and Tim seek out people leading lives less ordinary and talk with them about how they fill their unforgiving minutes and what helps them go always a little further. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to The Unforgiving 60 and to a very special double episode. Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to speak with two extraordinary individuals. Now, we started this podcast with a view to speaking to people who are leading lives less ordinary. But what if someone told you that that life that you were leading was about to end? They put a figure on the amount of time you had left on this planet. Well, the people we're going to speak to over the next couple of weeks have been told just that. We're going to ask them how they've dealt with this devastating news and what they've done to go a little further during the time that they've got left. And I think you'll find that they're making that time last even longer than anyone could have imagined. We hope you enjoy. guest in this special double episode is another Tim, Tim Reynolds. Tim is a West Australian, grew up as a surf club in Floriot, attended Hale School here, and left school after year 10, seek a trade within the Australian Army. After spending 15 years as a mechanic within the Army, he was commissioned as an officer and ended up leading a very interesting military career. Once he got out of the Army, he started a business and grew it to a multi-million dollar entity continuing his education, completing an MBA, and kicking goals all over the place, right up until the point that, in his words, God hit him with a big stick. Tim's gonna share his story with us today. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to The Unforgiving 60. I'm Ben Pronk, and I am joined this week by two Tims. The regular, normal, boring Tim. Tim Curtis. G'day, Ben. <laughs> G'day, Tim. And the exciting, new, fresh, dynamic guest this week, Tim Reynolds. How are you, Tim? Fantastic, guys. Uh, it's great to be here. Thanks. Look, it's really good to have you. And um, I'm sure we, we would all want to start by by getting a bit of an understanding of how you got to where you are at the moment, so a bit about your background and, and what got you to this present point in time and space. Yeah, sure. Um, I was a West Australian kid starting off uh, going to a, a fairly prestigious school over there, Hale School. I then had a military career of 27 years. I, uh, I took off initially as a 15-year-old entry into the Army Apprentices School, which was in Victoria at the time at a place called Balcom. It was a Boys Town, it was what I would call a pretty tough environment. And we were in there for two years, uh, sort of 15 to 16-year-old boys looked after by ex-Vietnam veterans who wanted to teach us the ways of the Army. We were taught as both soldiers and as tradesmen. So mm. we started off with tying boots and, and uh, marching around and getting yelled at and weapon 
all the weapons, M60 machine guns and SLR rifles. And it was, it was great. Um, you know, I've got a lot of good memories. And then uh, spent pretty much 15 years as a, as a tradesman you know, underneath vehicles, a vehicle mechanic, getting dirt in my face. <laughs> and uh, rapidly got sick of that. When I became a, a sergeant, things changed for me quite dramatically. I, I talked a little bit about sort of opportunity in life and, uh, you know, an opportunity is something that you create yourself or maybe it comes along and uh, I've created opportunity throughout my life and um, on a number of occasions. So there was a job at headquarters, 3rd Brigade, which I thought that I could do well. Um, I walked up to the incumbent and I said to him, mate, I want your job. And he said, you can have it. <laughs> so I ended up... Uh, it's never a good we, sign. We, <laughs> you know, it wasn't. But, you know, we rang the, the, the career managers and they just said, right, are you blokes just swap? And we did that <laughs> the next day and uh, got acceptance from the from the brigade commander. That was Peter Lay at the time. And I took that job and, and things just, the blinkers came off. And I started a role very quickly uh, in civil military affairs on the brigade headquarters. Hmm. which led me to my first deployment to Papua New Guinea in 98. That, that was a, um, a tidal wave disaster, um, Susano Lagoon, yep. and I had a role in negotiating space, medical facilities on the ground, the parasurgical team went in, and we dealt with that. Subsequently, went through my career. I uh, did some interesting things. You know, I, I started studying when I was a sergeant as well. You know, I wanted to just, you know, uh, top up on my trade. Uh, yep. So I started an engineering degree, mechanical engineering. It was terrific. You know, it was a time that an age that I wanted to study. Um, I got very good results, high distinctions, and everything. Pretty much every award and and a university medal. So, you know, I was proud of the outcomes there. Um, and it was busy. I was working full time and I'd knock off on Friday, hit the university, uh, be there all night, work all day Saturday, all day Sunday. And, you know, that was somewhat detrimental to other parts of my life. Um, uh, as you can expect, you know, family took yeah. a back seat to what was my idea of success and you know everyone's got a different level of success I suppose that's that's an interesting topic so um you know just after that I, I kept going through my career and decided that uh, I would like to be commissioned um, after working in several of these interesting roles and I put my hat in the ring got selected straight away and um, ended up as a, um, a captain doing some work there for a while uh, instructing I was a, a teacher at the Integrated Logistics Division, fancy name for uh, people trying to explain logistics and tactics <laughs> and <laughs> strategic level things, which was great. You know, I yeah. really enjoyed it. Um, then uh, I, uh, I ended up uh, being promoted to major. My expectation was that I would be posted down to Melbourne where they deal with all the technical side there you know yep. uh, things that an engineer would do uh, looking after Land Rover wheel nuts and bits and pieces so 
uh, it, you know, Melbourne, Canberra was my posting predictions, uh, which, you know, I'd been in the army in what was called field force and I'd been, you know, uh, in the, in the real time army on deployments and things the whole time. Uh, so that ended up changing and I ended up getting a squadron command in Darwin and um, to my surprise, um, which was just the best thing that you could, could happen. Yeah. Um, I was the, uh, to, to be a commander of, of men as a log, as a loggy, as a logistician is, um, is something special, but I ended up commanding those guys overseas and I went to Banda Arche through the massive tidal wave cleanup. So, so another disaster. Of, yeah. 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 I became a, like a tidal wave specialist, I think. And, um, <laughs> right from the start of that, I had a massive amount of responsibility in terms of, uh, it, it happened at Christmas. Because I was the new major on the block, I was uh, Johnny back in the unit doing the uh, you know duty field officer. Got the first call and and uh, spoke to my commanding officer, and he gave me some very memorable words. I'll never forget. He said, "Tim, recall the regiment." And so I did. I jumped on the Canimbra and sailed across, and spent three months at the host of the Indonesians and the TNI, their their army, um, fixing it up, and uh, it was tremendous. I'll say that one of the things that's interesting is, you know, we we didn't we we dealt we saw and dealt with a lot of trauma and bodies and you know uh, most of the people there at the time I suppose we were in recovery, there wasn't people left to save by the time our major body got there, so we didn't have to touch our men didn't have to touch the bodies or deal with that we we would ring up uh, a bunch of guys that we called the body snatchers nicely enough yeah. they were the uh, Indonesian um, people who dealt with it and they came in and they, they collected the, the parts that we found that they'd take DNA swabs deal with all the cultural sensitivities uh, about burial in their Muslim faith so that was really good to see um, and uh, we progressed and then finally came home and we had a quick unit refit um, sorted that out and I in a few months later deployed to Iraq so you know back-to-back -back operational deployments was uh was happening was and, straight on uh, and and this was yeah, with the yeah. UK or yeah it was yeah I I went across with a, a small group into a UK led uh, headquarters of the first armoured division and uh it was probably what I'd call a culmination of all my experience and skills I was an officer on the headquarters and by this time, senior, senior major, doing, uh, you know, the things that I wanted to do. Everyone wants to deploy operationally, uh, and you wait for that great opportunity to come along, and and it did. So that's you know another opportunity that I didn't select, but it came my way, and um, I feel very privileged. And my job was really a civil engineering role. It was to rebuild all the things that were destroyed essentially so we were rebuilding their security uh building iraqi army barracks police stations um there's a bunch of border forts around the country and um traveled extensively around the country which was inherently dangerous but that went well uh, because i'm still in one piece from <laughs> the <laughs> from proofs that. in the pudding <laughs> yeah. yeah and and then so from out of uniform, did you go straight into consultancy? I did. I um, How'd you find that transition? I, I've got to be honest, I found it pretty easy to, to 
to make. I don't think other people found it easy, <laughs> if you know oh, what yeah. I mean. Uh, yeah, so, yeah. you know, uh, I, I think the smile sort of started to fade. That's what happened to me. You know, I, I ticked off a lot of boxes in my military career. An opportunity to work in business was something that I really wanted to do. It was, a, it was, it was something that got in my mind and uh, an opportunity, again, was presented from someone I knew uh, as the director of a company and I resigned. Well, I didn't resign. I transitioned into the, the standby reserve and uh, you know, started a role with a company called Rockfield in uh, Townsville, a very small and risky venture with four people. Wow. And uh, over time, that became a, a multidisciplinary engineering company for civil and mechanical engineers with 14 plus staff and a multi-million dollar turnover. So I also at that time, I, I was very driven, guys. You know, it's, yeah. it's, it's hard for me to think about at times, uh, um, but that's, that's the way I was. Uh, I worked 16 plus hours every day. I then commenced studying my MBA and did that part-time whilst working full-time. And, um, uh, you know, people say to me, were you stressed at the time? Were you really stressed out? And I, and I don't think I really was too stressed out. I was, I, I've been called a micromanager. <laughs> 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 but, uh, you know, I like the detail. And yeah. um, people say it's not a good thing to micromanage, but for me, I, you know, I, I like knowing things, knowledge is power. You know, that's, that's a part of life too. And um, power comes out in many different ways. And Tim, let's talk about the illness. You were diagnosed in 2010 with multiple myeloma. What was the prognosis at that time? Uh, straight up, that was seven to 10 years. And I can quite happily announce, you know, that I've now outlived my prognosis. Mm. That said, uh, I was diagnosed back then. And um, I suppose, I say stupidly, I continued to work. Um, I went into a transplant uh, straight up in 2011. Mm -hmm. And that's a stem cell transplant for those that don't sort of... Um, know what happens there it's 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 terrible it, they bombard you with a drug called malphalan which destroys your immune system completely what's left of it and takes you to zero everything neutrophils platelets blood counts white cells gone and you sit in a pressurized room feeling very sick um you can't eat at all the smell of food just makes you ill and uh they they put you initially you have a process where they take your stem cells out of you this is where they use your own stem cells bombard you with this drug then a couple of about three days later they they put your own stem cells back into you and it reboots your system like a like a computer and uh over about four weeks you get to a point where you are released from hospital you go home and you spend 12 months recovering And, uh, you know, I went back to work um, after the transplant 
and continued doing that until 2013, mm. at which point I could not continue and uh, made a decision then to um, resign from the company, hand over. I, I helped out with uh, you know some bits and pieces as we finished up. My life has then become somewhat um, void of anything that I ever had before. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I initially suffered a great sense of loss through, you know, what can I do with my previous qualifications? Uh, what can I do with anything really? It was, it was treatment, treatment. And I've been on chemo solid for 10 years. I've not had a day off. And that's infusions weekly, fortnightly, or monthly. Currently, I, I have infusions every month, and that's a that's three drugs. So when I say an infusion, I go to the hospital, they jab me with a, a needle, cannulate me, and put in a bag of uh, special drug um, that attacks the cancer cells. And I then have a pill every day, which is more of a more of a serious chemotherapy drug actually than the infusion. Well they're all serious, but uh, you know, this one this one has real side effects for me on a day a daily basis. Uh, and I also take another drug, it's a high dose steroid every week. Um, and I just uh, I just took that yesterday. So that has some pretty wild effects both mentally, um, it's a crazy sort of drug. Uh, it gave me early onset cataracts, so I've had surgery to have that fixed up. Not that it lasted too long, but, um, uh, you know, weird things happen as a result of the drug. But uh, you have to take it in a, com- a combination sort of therapy, that those three drugs together are actually the protocol that, that helps. And I've now had, uh, that ten, in that 10 years, I've had two of those transplants and seven relapses. And uh, just by way of explanation, a relapse is when basically for me, the drugs stop working. And the typical thing is they'll either not work or they'll work. And if they work, they'll work for maybe one or two or maybe three years if I'm lucky. This current drugs worked for about two years and I'm looking like I'm on relapse number eight at the moment. So that means that the blood markers, uh, for everyone, they should be zero. Mine's at about 20, and they're now at about 120. So they're going upwards, and that can turn exponential fairly quickly. Um, So I just have to keep a very good check on things and sit with my exceptionally good oncologist and... Uh, talk to him about pathways for treatment. So we've done that and there might be one drug that's available and uh, yeah, the, the trick is to see if we start that, when we start it. You know, there's a, there's a lot of tactical sort of decisions with army and analogies, uh, but also, you know, there's a strategic plan to this and, and that's my approach. I, I follow it in that way. Yeah. So, Tim... When you were diagnosed and given your prognosis, how do you even begin to have the conversation with your loved ones that you have a terminal illness? Um, yeah, the um, I suppose you do it in the... I'm a fairly pragmatic sort of person. I've been a strong decision maker over time. And 
you've got to reveal things openly and transparently. Um, that's that's the way I approach it. Uh, you'd never want to cover anything like that up. Um, I told my family straight away. I went home that day, uh, called a family meeting with my wife and two children and sat around the family table and pretty much laid it out and said, you know, this is, this is what's happened. And, uh, you know, that was a difficult night, but it had to, had to be explained and what it was and, and, and why it had happened. There was, a, there was a whole bunch of questions that my children had asked and also my wife. And uh, Charmaine has, has been tremendous the whole time through. Um, she's also my wife, but she's also my carer. Um, I would say that the conversation was something I probably avoided for a little while with people outside of my family. Um, mm -hmm. it's, it, it's not really other people's business about my health, um, but the one person I did know, let know was the, the boss of my company, the director that you know, was in charge of what was happening. And, and over time, it took me till about year six out of the last 10, where I have opened up completely to everybody about my health um, because I see a lot of advantages in, in doing that. Um, there's, just, there's people who get these conditions and, and you know, it, it can be very terrifying. But I think there's a different way of looking at things. And uh, although I've got a terminal diagnosis, you know, I try and be happy and smile every day. Uh, uh, everyone that can create pathways through looking at the opportunities that are in front of them. That's a, a good approach. Um, there's other things too, you know, there's, there's, there's ways of dealing with mental health, which, you know, I, I, I help out veterans quite a bit. I try to anyway. Um, I attend Mates for Mates and other places where I, I, I try and help myself. So there's a few strategies as well that I've put in place to, as coping mechanisms uh, for me, but they're now extending sort of to my family as well. My wife comes down to mates and uses the gym and does other things like that. They're a terrific organisation. So let's go inside your own head. Clearly, you had this amazing military career. It sounds like you're at the top of the game or top of your game in the consulting space, very driven, working these long hours and in what sounds like a really rewarding, fast-growing sort of dynamic environment. Then all of a sudden, beyond your control, it's, it's kind of taken away from you. You, you mentioned yeah. you, you went into a pretty dark place. How, how have you clawed your, your way out of that to the, the position where now you can, you can adopt a smile every day and have such a positive out, outlook that we've just heard? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, experience uh, is one of the things I'd say. Um, you know, I, you, you, you get diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, breast cancer, you know, all these different things that float around. You want to know what's going on and the, the information, like I said before, information power. And if you've got that power, you can deal with things in a better way mentally. So I researched, I read journal papers and, you know, that's part of my skill set. Through my study experience, I was good at that. And I found out all about multiple myeloma. <laughs> you know, I say to people, have you heard about that? And they go, what the, what, what's multiple myeloma? Yeah. Heard of that thing? It's like, it's like leukemia, right? I said, yeah, a bit, 
it's in a blood cancer group. So yeah, so there's a massive education that you can do for yourself. It's all available. It's all just Google it and you get papers and find out about things. So that experience in treatment was another thing as well. Uh, when you first start having radiation or, um, you know, sit there being drugged and having tubes coming out of your chest and having transplants, it's terribly scary the first time it happens. But you find out that the doctors in charge of these things are so focused on wanting to help people. They are the most wonderful people with health that you will come across and essential to your survival. Um, so I, don't, I, I never got onto herbal remedies or mm. uh, things that were outside the parameters of what my oncologist had said. He would, you know, say to me, Tim, we're going to do this treatment and these are the reasons and I question him about it and throw things at him and, you know, we'd have very good dis deep discussions about why. So that trust that I have in my, in my treatment, you know, doctors, is another important part of handling it mentally. Mm. So there's trust and experience. And, you know, on the back of all that, I suppose I went through that first probably three or four years. Um, it, it, it was a dark place, you know, it was hard, scary. Um, and my survival made that more acceptable. Yeah. And when I stopped work, it then became a case of completely de-stressing my life. That was one of the objectives that I set myself. And I, you know, as a as a ex-military guy, setting goals is easy enough. Uh, making sure that you de-stress your life in terms of the best way financially, so you don't have any hassles with finances. The best way with making people aware of what's happening, and you know, so all the questions drop away. Um, mm. Why aren't you working? Uh, why do you walk with a stick? Uh, you know. It's, um, and what's it? every second of your day, someone asked me a question about my health and yeah. that becomes one of the difficult things to deal with mental, mentally. Yeah. yeah, Tim. And what's it made you appreciate? Well, I certainly have appreciated the, the, the health providers that, that, that have worked through this with me. I said that about the doctors. So I, I appreciate every step of their lives in researching cancer and you know, working with someone who's got a terminal diagnosis to make my life better, uh, livable. And as I've said to many people, I'm not going anywhere. I, I appreciate people that hold your hand. Now, I've got to be honest, I checked out twice being in hospital. Um, I appreciate that my wife sat by my side the whole time and held my hand to the point where, um, sorry, a bit emotional. Um, yeah, to the point where I checked out and she was there holding my hand and as things sort of grayed over, uh, I came back uh, with a lot of good work from a lot of special health providers. You know, my wife has struggled with a lot of stuff that goes around this too, as have my, you know, the rest of my kids and extended family too. But, you know, uh, having that person there to hold your hand when you really need it, uh, that's what you appreciate.
And so, Tim, you've mentioned previously that one of the techniques you used to, to help get, get you through this time was um, by starting art, starting painting. Uh, yeah. The Mates for Mates organisation um, offer art classes, you know, for veterans. And I started doing those classes with Mates for Mates here in Townsville uh, around about four years ago. And it was a great exposure, something that engineers don't do very well. Uh, we yeah. tend to live in small boxes and use the other side of our brain. So, so I learned all about watercolours and acrylics and oils and portraits and pottery and leatherwork and all sorts of fantastic things. Yeah. And we could make a bit of a selection about what we like to do and uh, the classes went for a month on each topic. So we'd spend four weeks each Friday. We'd all come together and, you know, learn about, say, watercolours and uh, you could practice that at home. And the the idea is that when you're doing these activities, it takes your mind away from those issues that are affecting your life. So yeah. it's part of therapy. I, I, I'll be honest with you, I spend time with a psychologist as well. And uh, that's been very helpful. Uh, because you get a chance to just discuss things, but uh, the art classes is one of the one of the ways that I've set up myself uh, to sort of to really help out, and it has. And, and I particularly like portraits. And one of the things that I started doing was a portrait of my stepfather in his with a slouch hat, and uh, from a picture that they took when he was a veteran, uh, they 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 took a bunch of photos of, of hundreds of veterans. A few years ago, I don't know if you remember the program, but um, with his medals on and did that as an oil painting. And uh, subsequently, um, I did a portrait of Cameron Baird, um, who was yeah, in Afghanistan. Victoria so, Cross winner. Absolutely. And yeah, I, I rang up his dad and sought permission to do that. It's, it's not a small portrait. I like larger paintings. I can, I can see them a lot better. Um, and I, Cameron's portrait is, uh, it came up very well. I put that in the Napier Waller uh, prize um, thing every year for the uh, Australian War Memorial was yes. how I started doing it. Someone, someone said, oh, you should try this out, Tim. Uh, and I, I didn't win a thing, um, but it doesn't matter. It was more, more about just the experience and, and doing something that was very special uh, to me, you know, as a veteran, but also, you know, having a, a wonderful portrait, which I called the Mohican War Stance, which came from uh, interesting the camouflage that he wears, and um, uh, you guys would be more familiar with camouflage that he used to to scare the mm -hmm. enemy, and that mm -hmm. was that was Cam's strategy. I, you know, as a as a as a loggy in the army, I was always hiding in the bushes, so mine was <laughs> green, brown, and black, and very <laughs> difficult to scrub off. <laughs> so you know, I, I, one of the things that's been Art's been very good, but it, it's also been challenging in the last uh, last two years. So I started that four years ago, and I had because my immune system is 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 compromised. Uh, I quarantine a lot, and I thought I was doing a pretty good job until my body reacted. Um, I had a an E. coli bug which got pushed into me, unfortunately, and um, that's just a consequence of too many needles. And um, 
that ended up in a thing called necrotizing cellulitis, which was quite a surprise and some emergency surgery. And I lost a great slice of my left hand side around my stomach and that. But um, I got over that and about six months later, I uh, woke up one morning and said to my wife, Charmaine, why is the, why is the world disappeared on half of my eye? So we questioned what was happening and it's straight off to the ophthalmologist. And what had happened is a, is a thing called CMV retinitis, a, a stomach bug had lodged into my eyeballs and started rapidly eating my retinas away, which was a little bit weird. And, you know, you don't expect these things to happen, but it did. And after a race against time, I'd sort of 24 hours and otherwise I'd lose my sight completely. And we got some antibiotics, thankfully. And, jab those in straight away and i can tell you needles in your eyeballs are not something that's too oh. pleasant when you've got to protect your sight and do these things you just have to do it yeah so away we went and um i then spent the whole month having this uh eyeball treatment every second day so they put the local an- the local anesthetic probably the bit that hurts the most then they the rest of the antibiotic goes in and it's like watching psychedelic jellyfish roll around your eyes for a bit and then you're blind out for 24 hours then slowly it comes back and then they jab you again and you're blind out so you've got this cycle of blindness and you know and fortunately for me i i probably only lost about 40 percent um which has that's probably i'd say one of the most significant things that's affected me aside from having a terminal diagnosis you know dealing Mm. with bad vision affects every part of your life and you get a much better understanding of all the people who have these conditions and disabilities um uh, a lot more empathy uh and you know that affected my artwork uh so uh, i'll say that my pieces are probably a bit more abstract now (laughs) (laughs) mixing colors is difficult you know i i can't everything gray is gray in color they're hard to see and mix to the, to any degree and, you know, getting detail is difficult. So I, I do a bit of work on my iPad, you know, I can zoom in on things there and, and you know, use an Apple pencil and, you know, there's different ways of dealing with things. And, you know, as technology is fantastic. I, I yeah. use technology every day for everything and, you know, I'm not too bad at using it. And uh, I think it's a real advantage for everyone. And yeah. So, so artwork's been compromised a bit, but I'm not going to stand back at the moment. I'm working on a a 20 square meter painting of uh, well, it's a it's a painting of Darth Vader actually in colour. <laughs> so um, it's a reflections of Endor, which is uh, hopefully going to be the name. And that's through Mates for Mates. We've got a large scale artwork program, and we've got a bunch of people who are lining up now, and we're going to do these large scale paintings and put them on the walls around the centre. Mm. and make it make it look nice inside for ourselves and um, also have that that art therapy that program is going to go for three years and it'll probably take me about three years to do my, to, to do make my it. pain <laughs> but you know it's going well and um, I, the other thing I'm doing is trying to use my brain where I can yeah, my, my body's failing me my last report with my MRI more holes in my spine than Swiss cheese and uh, by way of holes, the, the disease gives you bone lesions, and these are 18 to 22 millimeters in size. How, how does that even fit inside your spine? I yeah, don't know. God. But um, you know, I 
as that's not working and I'm careful about what I lift and very, you know, there's a lot of limitations. But my brain seems to be working and I'm going to keep using that uh, amongst all the drug effects that you get. But um, I've been working with a group of people for veterans around a thing called a veteran skill centre. And that's where people can sort of use the, the skills that they have from the ADF, um, maybe to work on their car or build a drag car or do some welding or do some tech work and build an app or, you know, a website or, mm. you know, things that are, you know, every different age group wants. And, you know, we want this for all veterans of all ages, of all sexes. And, um, you know, it's, it's, been in a proposal now it's with government looking to seek some funding for that and um, hopefully it comes through because there's nothing better as an old tradie than hitting a hammer against an old engine block <laughs> get to get rid of some of the problems in life <laughs> which is is actually from a 15 year old apprentice through this amazing journey that you've shared with us today to to come back to that is is probably a nice way to bookend our conversation tim you're an inspiration yes. what you're doing now and i love that image of a a 20 square meter painting is, as you know, you're, you're still shooting big. It's, it's absolutely impressive, mate. Thank you very much for sharing your story with us. Thanks, guys. Now to the debrief. We strive for continuous improvement and greatly appreciate your insights and feedback. Also, if you know someone who is living that life less ordinary, please tell us. You can get in touch at debrief at unforgiving60.com. That's debrief at unforgiving60.com. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please tell your friends and write a review for us on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow and engage with us on social media. Just search for Unforgiving 60 on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Until next episode, keep filling your unforgiving minutes with 60 seconds worth of distance run. See you next time on the Unforgiving 60.